You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today we welcome back Greg Boyd on Common Grace, and our conversation touches on Christian nationalism, atonement theory, and peace theology. Atonement theory is considering how and what God did through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And although there are many theories on how the atonement of Jesus saved humanity, there's very little argument within Christianity that Jesus' death on the cross offers us eternal life. Now, just war theology is the belief that preserving life and peace sometimes requires resorting to war, whereas peace theology comes from a perspective of nonviolence and believing that preserving life and peace requires refusing war and violence at any cost. Both perspectives agree that war and violence is undesirable and both strive to follow the teachings of Jesus. A common grace is a place for us to learn and grow together, a place to disagree and hear new opinions. And although these two views are very distinct, they don't need to cause division. We hope this episode catalyzes dialogue, learning, and mutual transformation. Now let's listen, as Greg reminds us that it's important for us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, and most importantly, always put Christ at the center. So, you know, why don't you just talk a little bit of your story of how Christian nationalism and, and seeing that as such an issue in the, in the Christian church had maybe shifted or impacted your ministry? Well, if you look at history, whenever the church, it goes back to the, the fourth century when the church first came into political power with Constantine. Constantine invited the, the church to help run the Roman Empire. And uh, unfortunately, the church said, yeah, we'll, we'll sign up for that. You can understand it because it brought an end to the persecution of Christians and things like that. But what happened is that at that point, the thinking of followers of Jesus completely changed because the goal up to that point in the first three centuries of the church was simply to be faithful to the call of the kingdom, carry out the life that Jesus has called us and empowered us to do. But beginning in the fourth century, when the church got involved with politics, well, you start thinking like the world. Instead of carrying the cross, which is about carrying self-sacrificial love for people, we start to carry the sword because you can't run an empire without fighting enemies on the outside and forcing law on the inside. And so uh, you just start to try to radically reinterpret the teachings of Jesus when he says, don't retaliate, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you and so on. Well, the church just got rid of that. And instead of, you know, turning the other cheek, we become the institution that cuts off people's heads if they don't agree with us. And throughout history, whenever the church has gotten too much involved in the national pride and the running of the government, it lost the distinct, beautiful call of the kingdom to be humble servants and, and to, to love the least of these, to go out of our way for those who are broken and marginalized, and to put on display the character of our the Father in the process, which is our most fundamental call. And so we, what you have then is a, a Christianized version of the kingdoms of the world, you know? It's just that now the nationalism corrupts the kingdom. So instead of having a singular allegiance to Abba Father and to living out, living in his reign, now our allegiance gets divided and it's to our nation and, you know, how good we are, American conceptualism, whatever. And it just harms the witness of the church. It erodes the character of the church. It's never been good news. It's never been good news. And now what we're seeing, I mean, the church has already been in America already too much involved, I think, in American nationalism, American pride, and, you know, it's why most Christians don't have a second thought. They never even question if our country is going to war. They don't question the legitimacy of Christians signing up for it. Yeah, okay, I'll go and kill somebody because my commanding officer tells me to. 
not that you've done research and you know this is a justified war and whatever. No, you, you just do because, of course, your country is right and therefore it's right to defend it. Of course, that's what the other side's thinking as well. And so the merry-go-round of violence goes on and on and on. And what we have going on now is, uh, is kind of a frightful, intensified version of that. We've always had this kind of extreme, quote-unquote, Christian white nationalist kind of dimension to our history that's always been there, but it's been very much fringe. But in the last four years, they've been legitimized, they've been empowered, they've been co-opted, and uh, that's what we saw on January 6th, storming the White House. And this, this kind of militant, quote-unquote, Christian, almost exclusively white uh, nationalistic thing. It, it's, it's a different religion. It's a different religion than what, in fact, the kingdom is not even a religion. So I'm comparing apples and oranges, but it, it's not the kingdom at all. It's simply fallen people prone towards violence, putting a Christian label on things. And the saddest thing about it is that it harms the reputation of Christ. When people associate Christ with you know, the Confederate flag and with violence and with intolerance and judgmentalism, it hurts the cause of Christ. We're, we're called to be known by our love, by the sacrifices we're willing to make to ascribe worth to people who in the world aren't rating on the worth system. We're supposed to attract people to the kingdom by the beauty of our lives. And instead, people associate Christianity with this very, very ugly stuff. So it's important that we take a stand. We say out loud that whatever is, is relying on violence, that's not the kingdom. And whatever's mixed up with the flag, that's not the kingdom. Whenever you've got people involved in hate, that's not the kingdom. When people are trying to plow over their enemies instead of loving their enemies, that's not the kingdom. You can always tell the kingdom because it always looks like Jesus Christ crucified. It has the character of Jesus Christ crucified. It has the love of Jesus Christ crucified. When Abba Father reigns over a people, to the degree that we're surrendered to that kingdom, our lives are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus never packed a pistol and never raised up the Roman flag. No, he, he had a separate kingdom that he was planning, inaugurating, and advancing. It's so important. We, we keep that kingdom distinct, holy, separate. Have your political opinions, but don't, don't slap the label Christian on them. No, it's, opinions are one thing. The kingdom is something very different. It seems like when people conflate Christianity with nationalism, that almost put a allegiance to flag and state over their allegiance to Jesus or to the kingdom, they're blind to that. Why, why is there blindness to that? And how do you help people get beyond that, that blindness? Well, the blindness is mostly, I think, the result of just people don't have a clear, they're not taught a clear vision of what the kingdom's supposed to be. If you don't have a clear idea of what you're supposed to be doing, you'll be foggy about, you know, when you're not doing it, you're, you're easily, you know, People talk about sometimes, we, well, we have dual citizenships. We're, you know, citizens of, of America, and we're also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus told us you can't serve two masters. Something's got to take the upper hand. Something will be the ultimate ruling thing. And you're right. When you put nationalism next to the kingdom of God and treat them as like dual citizenship, as though they're both equal, well, the kingdom's already lost then. <laughs> because the kingdom's about a singular allegiance. Seek first the kingdom of God and its right relatedness, and everything else, we trust that everything else will be added unto you. We only are allowed one master. My president is Jesus Christ. Now, he tells me to obey the laws of the land as much as possible. So for, out of my allegiance to Christ, I will be a good citizen. But I do it not for the sake of the country, but for the sake of the kingdom. And if there's any conflict between the two, well, then the apostle said in Acts 5, 
we must obey the word of God rather than the words of men. But we, we have to be casting a clear vision about what the kingdom is and how it's supposed to be modeled on Jesus Christ and cast a clear vision of that in order to tell when we're getting off track. And on the whole, I'd say the church today in America has gotten severely off track on the whole. There's beautiful exceptions, but on the whole, uh, you know, if we're loving like Jesus loved, he attracted the worst of sinners. They wanted to hang out with him. He, he tells us that he had, he had dinners with prostitutes and tax collectors. They would know that this rabbi wouldn't condone all of their behavior. And yet his love for them was greater than whatever opinions that they could perceive in him. And they wanted to hang out with him because he wasn't judging them. And so you have to ask the question, how come the worst of sinners aren't beating down our doors wanting to hang out with us? In fact, why is it that on the whole, the worst of sinners, those who are most judged in society, they want to steer clear of Christians for the same reason that the prostitutes and tax collectors want to steer clear of the Pharisees. No one wants to be around people who are going to be judging you. Everybody is hungry to be around people who are going to ascribe worth to them and make them feel human and heard and loved and legitimized. Well, that says something. You know, that's a sign that something's gone wrong. We need to get back to simplicity of loving the way Jesus loved and there seems to be a broken logic that is unseen. Why is the path to peace as important as the destination of peace? Martin Luther King said it best. The means has got to be conformed to the end. You'll never get to a peaceful end unless you're using peaceful means. The idea that we'll attain peace through violence, that's what's often called the myth of redemptive violence. That violence is going to redeem us. And I'd say if there's one lie that human beings have most persistently succumbed to, and it's been so destructive throughout history is that lie that if we just kill enough of the bad guys, then we'll have peace. Then we'll reign. If we, the righteous, can defeat the unrighteous, then we'll bring peace on this earth. Just one more, the war to end all wars. This time will be the end. And it never works. There's not one example in history of any group coming to power through violence that wasn't ultimately overthrown by violence. And the same will hold true for America. America was founded on virtual genocide of the indigenous population and the enslavement of Africans. Tremendous violence put white people in power in this country. And you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword sooner or later. And that's just the way history goes. The job of the church, the job of kingdom people is to model a different way of doing things. To opt out of the myth of redemptive violence. To live by this. Jesus said that we're to love like the father loves, right? That the father loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls. The rain doesn't pick and choose who it gets wet. It just does what it does. And the sun doesn't pick and choose who it shines on. It just does what it does. So also, Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, we're to love our enemies and to not retaliate against evildoers, swear off all violence. And in doing that, he says, you know, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So when we love the way Abba Father loves, we put on display that we are his children, that we're born from above. And that's what advertises the beautiful character of Abba Father, which in God's design is to be used to draw people into the kingdom. Greg, what if someone's listening to this and they're starting to resonate, but then there's the question of like, well, how do I do that? What would you say to them? Well, here's one place to start. Pick out, ask the Spirit to guide you on this, but the three or four people that you have the hardest time not hating. And commit to praying for them every day until God releases you from that. I think this is a discipline that every kingdom of fear person should cultivate in their life. It's part of your prayer life. 
make sure you're praying for the people that you have the hardest time loving. Maybe the people that you have a hard time just not hating and despising and loathing. And though in praying for them, just agree with God that that person, even though maybe their life is deplorable, maybe they hurt you in incredibly bad ways, all of that. But nevertheless, that person has got unsurpassable worth as evidenced by the fact that Jesus Christ died for them. And our job is, as the first act of discipleship, is to agree with Abba Father about that. Yes, that person has unsurpassable worth. Despite their behavior, despite their lifestyle, despite what they've done, blah, blah, they were worth Jesus dying for. And so we pray blessing on them. And that will form your character. People often say, well, if we're not supposed to resort to violence, what would you do if someone broke into your house and was going to you know, kill your ch children? Okay, that, that's a tough one. But maybe if we start on the simple things, just praying for enemies day to day, maybe in 10 years, we'll develop the kind of character, which if someone broke into our house, we wouldn't be thinking about what kind of rule are we supposed to obey and responding to them. We would have the kind of character that actually loves them. It's not like there's a rule that says I'm not allowed to commit violence against you. It'd be like if my son went crazy and, and was going to attack my wife. Well, I will get in the way of that. I will do everything possible to prevent that from happening, but I'm not going to kill my son. I love him just like I love my wife, and that changes the equation. And so rather than saying, well, if someone came into broken into my house and was going to you know, kill my children or my wife, surely I'd be justified killing them. Rather than starting with that, which obviously Jesus didn't mean that. And then what happens, people work their way back into, well, if I should protect my family, I should protect my country. And, and now, now the teaching about loving your enemies and never retaliating it gets reduced down to, you know, be nice to your grouchy neighbor you know, or something. It's a lot more radical than that. So rather than that, let's start. Let's assume Jesus is right when he says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. Don't retaliate. Let's assume he's right. And we just don't get it. So let's start practicing it in every little way we can. And that will grow us into the kind of character that can maybe perhaps we'll see the rationality. We'll see the beauty of Jesus' unique way of responding to evil rather than trying to crush it with a gun. Mm. I mean, that's a huge, huge challenge, but it's a beautiful challenge. When I think about the cruciform or the, the Jesus-centered way of loving, loving people, the love ethic prioritizes concrete actions of love, and it prioritizes how we handle power and love before we jump to strange hypotheticals. Right. It's always been, I think, a wrong-headed way of thinking about things that goes back to St. Augustine, uh, where... You start with something that seems intuitively true to you, and then, then you, work, you work from there. So since it seems actually immoral not to use whatever violence you need to to protect your children and your wife or your husband or whatever, if you start with that, well, then you just expand from there. If, if it's right for me to protect my children, why not my neighbor? If my neighbor, why not my state? If my state, why not the country? And now you're just like every other person thinks in this world, and the teachings of Jesus get thrown out the window. So I, I think let's start with the concrete. Let's start with the assumption that Jesus is right. If I call him Lord, then I have to assume he's right. And he doesn't make any qualifications about loving your enemies. He doesn't say love your enemies unless you're justified you're killing them. He knows that it's, it's radical. He says, yeah, everyone loves those who love them, but you're called to do something radically different, to show the world a different way and to put on display Abba Father. Jesus could have called legions of angels at his defense, and he would have been justified. But instead, he chose to lay down his life for his enemies. We are called to do the same thing. That's an example that we're to follow. Start with the authority of Jesus and, and then live in a way that will maybe modify what you find to be your common sense. And what seems obvious to you will change.
Oh, it's so good. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back to this episode of Common Grace, but we wanted to take a second and just say thank you for your support. Common Grace is made possible by your patronage and generosity. If you want to help us continue Common Grace, consider giving a one-time gift or a monthly pledge by clicking on our Give tab in the show notes. If you aren't able to give, please consider sharing this podcast with your friends or family and rating us on Apple Podcasts. These are the best ways to help us reach more people. Now let's get back to our conversation, and thanks again for listening. How does your perspective on this cruciformity, this ethic of love, this teaching of love of enemy, how does that connect to your perspective on the atonement? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. How does love of enemies, uh, well, it's this, I mean, uh, I'll just start talking and see what, what sense comes of it. And if I'm make, not making sense, just correct me. But that's a very astute question. And it's one that I have not explicitly addressed for a long time. Here's the thing. Paul tells us that while we were yet enemies, Jesus laid down his life for us. You know, we were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 2. Uh, yet God became a human being and went to the extreme of, of dying a God-forsaken death on our behalf. So the cross is all about enemy love. And, and we're told to replicate that. You know, First Peter 2 tells us that in, in doing this, he set an example for us. Everything about the cross, in, in my thinking, is about good overcoming evil. Jesus Christ dies to bring an end to Satan's reign in this world. First John 3, 8, he, he came, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 tells us that Jesus became a human in every respect like we are, that he might taste death just like we do, but thereby defeat the Lord of death and, and then free all those who have been fearful of death all their lives. So I think it's ultimately about defeating evil and then freeing us to see the true God. He frees us from from delusion so we can see who God truly is. We can begin to see who we truly are. We can begin to see what human life is supposed to be all about. And in all of that, we're, we're just manifesting the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and at the root of the whole thing is, is enemy love. It's, it's enemy love. Martin Luther King said it so well. You, you can't drive out darkness with more darkness. The only way you can drive out darkness is to turn on the light. And we're, we are to be the light of the world. Just like Jesus Christ was the light of the world, and now he's supposed to shine through us. That's the connection there. Live off the meaning of the cross. So many Christians, when they've talked about the gospel or heard the gospel, they've re- reduced the gospel to a theory about atonement, almost without knowing it. Why is that problematic? Well, maybe it, it wouldn't be problematic, but it depends on what kind of atonement you're talking about. What's problematic is that the way a lot of, especially Protestants, especially evangelicals have thought through the atonement, it puts the myth of redemptive violence at center stage. They have the idea that God has to vent his wrath. God's wrath towards us, because we're sinners, would entail eternal hell. So Jesus comes along and says, no, don't, don't take your wrath out on them. Take your wrath out on me. And so Jesus absorbs the wrath of the Father, and that's why he, he dies. Well, the idea there is that God solved the world's greatest problem, which is how is God going to be reconciled to humanity and to creation. God solves that problem through violence, by taking his wrath out, his anger out on his son. And if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. I mean, that, that's been the most problematic aspect of Christian theology, I think, since the Middle Ages. There's a book out there called Cross Purposes by uh, Anthony Bartlett. 
And what he shows is that when this model that Jesus somehow had to stand in our place and is punished by God for our sins, of course, the morality of that move has always been pretty obscure. But when this model became, when it replaced the Christus Victor model, which had been the dominant model for a thousand years leading up to that time, that the main reason Jesus died was to defeat the devil. And, and everything else that could be said about the atonement is, is, is kind of a, a flushing out of that. Well, in the 11th century with Anselm's satisfaction theory of the atonement, we now put violence at center stage. And what Anthony Bartlett does in his book is he shows how it's right after that, when, when that model of the atonement becomes dominant, that the church launches off into the Crusades and the Inquisition. And then Christians turn on violence with one another. And the church had been violent ever since the fifth century, but it was always kind of a marginalized thing. It only becomes institutionalized after this violent model of the atonement gets institutionalized and becomes centralized. We always imitate the God that we worship sooner or later. And so if the God you worship solves problems with violence, then you'll be prone to solve violence, uh, problems with violence. I think Jesus did die in our place, but he, he wasn't sort of the deflection of the wrath of God. That they, like God was literally angry with him and had to, all the violence that was done to Jesus wasn't done by Abba Father. It was done by human beings who were working under the influence of the principalities and powers. The only thing Abba Father did, the only verb applied to God the Father when it comes to the, the Jesus' death is that God delivered him over, turned him over to wicked men who then did what was on their heart to do, which is the violence that was inflicted on Jesus. And, and that is, I think, that is the judgment of God. I don't think God ever needs to resort to violence to bring about a judgment. God just turns people over to the wickedness that is there. Romans 1 says it perfectly. Paul says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Okay, that's the beginning of Romans 1. And then, as he talks about it, the wrath of God is where God says it in verse 24, 26, and 28. God delivered them over. Because these people worship the creature more than the creator, God delivered them over to the reprobate mind. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. The wrath of God is revealed when God says, I got to let you go. You got to go your own way. Well, that's what the father does does with Jesus. He turns Jesus over. He withdraws protection. And now Jesus enters into this God forsaken zone, which is the place that we deserve to be. And that's since he dies in our place. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the consequences of the sin of the world that he's bearing. And the consequences of the sin of the world is ultimately the rejection of God. We push him away. And there comes a point where God says, I got to let, let, let you go. And that violence serves as a mere effect of showing and revealing what's at the heart of humanity in many ways. And then there's the freedom that comes through this, through Jesus becoming the victor over sin, Satan, and, and death. So you're contrasting a Christus victor, a form of Christus victor model to what is commonly known as PSA or penal substitutionary atonement. Right. Just right. for, for our listeners, and one of the observations I, I heard in there, I just wanted to make sure I understood right, and you correct me if I'm not picking this up correctly, is that when we put, when we take Jesus maybe out of or put him to the side of the gospel, and we put the mechanism by which we're saved at the center of the gospel, and then we, we fill that with a, a wrathful, violent form of salvation through this mechanism, we shouldn't be surprised when we see discipleship flowing from that that looks like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm afraid there's a lot of negative consequences to penal substitution theory. But yeah, one of them is that, you know, 
if the mechanism of salvation includes violence, well, then we should expect that the Christian life is going to include some violence. Like we said before, you, know, you can't get to a peaceful end through a, through a violent means. It, it just doesn't work. But, you know, the Apostle Paul, he uses the message of the cross and the gospel interchangeably. First Corinthians 1 does that. So for him, the gospel is the message of the cross. So there's a sense in which the gospel can be reduced to the message of the cross, atonement theory. But it's clear in Paul's writings that the atonement theory is supposed to lead to a cruciform life, a life that looks like the self-sacrificial Jesus. Not the ones who are crucifying him. Say that again? We're supposed to look like Jesus, the one being crucified, and not like the ones crucifying him. That's it. Exactly. That's the stark way of putting it. It's very, very true. Yeah, it should lead to a cruciform life. And the spirit that was in Christ is now in us and should be leading us to do the same thing. So now discipleship will become a matter of, of imitating Christ and, and learning practices that conform us to Christ and learning how to take every thought captive to Christ, learning how to think like Jesus, love like Jesus, to build this Jesus-looking kingdom. That's what discipleship should look like. But if, you're, if you put the mechanism of salvation in, in sort of this bizarre transaction between God the Father and God the Son, the model is, it comes out of Luther and Calvin, who both were lawyers before they were theologians. And so, not surprisingly, it's, it's, a legal, it's a legal model. And so you've got God, the judge up there, and we're the guilty defendants. And Jesus is like our lawyer. The judge pronounces us to be guilty, and therefore we're going to have to suffer eternally. In most people's theology, it goes like this. But Jesus makes this weird deal with the Father, like, no, you punish me instead of them, and let them go free. And it's not surprising that that leads to a lot of people having a great love for Jesus. But as was true of Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, he wasn't so sure about God the Father, you know, because God the Father, it looks like, would just assume has sent us to hell for eternity. But instead, Jesus, you know, stood in the way. Well, for one thing, I mean, it has a lot of negative consequences. For example, if this is a legal transition, well, then, first of all, I got to wonder, how did that happen? How, where, where's the morality in taking my guilt and then and making Jesus actually guilty and then taking out on him what you wanted to take out on me? How does that work? But beyond that, it's like, okay, well, I'm free. And it has nothing to do with my character. I get out of prison free. That's wonderful. But it, it renders my, nothing's been done that will take care of my criminal character. You know, I need to be reformed, not just released. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a truncated atonement theory. It, it doesn't include necessarily the Christian life at all. And so then it leads to the kind of Christianity that we have today, where you're saved by virtue of what you believe in your head. Now that's looked in with grace. It's grace because it doesn't require any change in our life. But while we all are against works salvation, you can't work your way to salvation. It's all by grace. But see, I believe that that grace is empowering. It's a grace that now begins to transform us. And if it's real, it has an impact on us. And so I would never separate the atonement theory from the call to the Christian life. The gospel, I think, is the message of the cross, but the message of the cross includes everything about our life. It's the message that we're, we're to be conformed to the character of Abba the Father and put that on display. All that, I think, is involved in the saving process. The legal paradigm just doesn't, it's limited. It captures, in you know, the legal metaphor captures a partial truth, but a better metaphor, I think, is a covenant. Not a legal transaction, but a covenant. Think of it more like a marriage. A marriage gets you into a real relationship. It's not just a, a transaction between a judge and a defendant. It's a real relationship that now has is, is got to change you from the inside out. And what the Christian life is all about, I think, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, it's we're learning how to be married to our heavenly groom.
you know, but what is to live a, a married life? To think about in terms of a we instead of a me. That's the goal of the whole Christian life. I love that life becomes less about sin management and managing other people's sin. It becomes about living a life in the kingdom. It reframes everything. Like as a professor, I'll tell you, I can't tell you the number of students that I talk to who sanctification becomes sort of a matter of legal loophole finding, you know, and it makes sense. Okay. So through some legality, I got released from prison. Great. But now what are the terms of my acquittal? Hmm. Uh, can it be revoked or am I eternally secure in this acquittal? If I'm eternally secure, woohoo! I can do what I want and I, whatever, you know, and, and I still have that security of, uh, you know, that I've been acquitted and I've met people who are, you know, living in, <laughs> don't have a care in the world about God or anything, but it's one guy I knew, but I met him at a truck stop and we were, I was having lunch and he starts bragging to me about this three girls he's got on this truck route and the cocaine that he gets for free on this truck route and the lifestyle he's living. He's li and so then he asked me, what do I do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so he immediately starts backpedaling, but uh, he goes, well, I know it's maybe kind of surprising, but uh, I'm a fellow of uh, brother in Christ and we'll be sharing glory together. And I go, Oh really? I uh, tell me about that. And he let me know that at the age of five, his grandmother took him to church and he went up front and prayed the prayer. And now God doesn't see his sin. God looks at him through Jesus' spectacles. So he, Jesus is his savior, but not his Lord. And I tried to gently just push back down that a little bit, like, well, are you sure that that's a legitimate distinction? <laughs> but that's what happens when you have this mouth. Or then there's some who would say, well, maybe it, it can be revoked. So what are the terms of it being revoked? So you have a, a rule, uh, thou shalt not fornicate. Well, what? Now you begin to think like lawyers. If you're thinking with a legal paradigm, you'll think like a lawyer. Okay, well, what is fornication? Exactly. Let's be precise here. Is it getting the first base or getting the second base? Or maybe it's everything, everything's permissible sort of intercourse. I mean, some of the stuff the students tell me they do it would make married couples blush. But as long as they don't have penal penetration, they're good to go. And it's like, who are you kidding? So if you have a covenantal context, to think about this, like, what would my wife think if I said, honey, um, what exactly is adultery? You know, how much can I get away with with another woman before you'll divorce me? How many times can I get away with it? It's like, OK, there's something seriously wrong with your marriage. If you're thinking like that, you know, if you're thinking like a marriage, well, as Paul did, he says, flee from immorality. Go the other direction. Don't see how close you can get to it. Out of love, you see how far away from you, you can get from it. And that's how you think in a marriage context, you know, rather than thinking, how much can I get away with this? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better spouse? Well, that's how it should be in our relationship with our Lord. It's a marriage. It's not a legality. It's a real relationship. And that is what saves us. That's what transforms us. That's what makes us fit for heaven. And um, that, that's the gospel. Greg, thank you for this conversation. It's been so insightful and rich. Well, thank you. You can tell I'm a little bit passionate about it because I think that there's so much at stake. You know, it, it's so... It, I'll end with this. It's so important. I think the most important fact in anyone's life is what is your mental conception of God? How do you really image God? I'm not asking about what theology do you give when asked a question. It's what really goes on in your head when you think about God, because we always become the, the model of God that, that we worship. And it's so important that our picture of God is beautiful and compelling. It's the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that it's as we gaze upon the glory of the Lord shining through the face of Jesus Christ that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. So I, I really believe that the beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. 
And the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God because we always take on the, the, the form of the God that we worship. Focus everything on Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics, send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.